Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is March 21st, 2016. This is episode 1748 of the Survival Podcast. And this is a listener feedback show. To, uh, to provide content or questions or comments for a show like this, just send an email to jack at the survival podcast.com. Again, jack at the survival podcast.com. And, um, I will uh, take a look at it. You should put TSPC in the subject line to help alert me to that that it's for the show. That will help me keep it from ending up in the spam filter or getting just kind of deleted on a quick email scan type thing. And I'll consider it for inclusion on the show. I get lots and lots of emails, but I do try to get about you know eight to ten a week uh, on the air. I get the same thing from a lot of people. It almost always gets on the air. Um, today I have a pretty good diverse uh, lineup of stuff for you. Sometimes people say the shows get too topic specific, and hey, it's your show. This this is your show, right? And I, I mean, the whole show is your show, but the the Monday shows and the Friday shows with, uh, you know, your calls or actually your Monday and Thursday shows, your calls to the Think Line and your Monday shows with your emails. If you want different topics, send me different topics. We'll talk about anything that fits in with the modern survival lifestyle. I'm also making a change today, uh, and we're going to see how it runs and how people like it. I'm going to stop doing the sponsor segments. At the beginning of the show, and I'm going to start doing them about 30 minutes in. I'll pause and just put them in there, and then uh, we'll roll on with the show like more like conventional radio. I think that might be better for people. Gets us into the topic quicker. Uh, we are still going to keep the history segment at the front of the show, and uh, we'll uh, we'll roll on that way and see how people like it. With that, <clears throat> let's go ahead and take a look at the year that was the episode today. Every day we have this. Uh, uh, the year of the episode, the episode 1748, so the year is 1748. I have the woolly beginnings of the industrial age, and I have elimination of the income tax. Denied. And that's about France. And I'm going to read the other one, so I'll just tell you that the income tax in France at the time was 10%. It was dropped to 5 because people were pissed off about it, and it went back up to 10 People were really upset about it. It's interesting because I think today if people could get a 10% flat tax, it might not be perfect, but it would be better than what we had. And everybody paid the same, by the way. France now, of course, one of the most highly taxed nations in the world. Which tells us, honestly, the more libertarian a nation is, many times the more it progresses into tyranny because the freedom creates prosperity, which the government eventually taxes at higher and higher rates and then builds up massive government that otherwise could not afford to do. But we're going to read the woolly beginnings of the Industrial Age because it has to do with a topic we're going to talk about at the end of today's show. The woolly beginnings of the Industrial Age. Great Britain has been cracking down on cheap imports from India in order to keep British subjects working. But the British textile industry finds ways to cut labor costs and speed production. The labor-intensive part of the industry is carding, which is a separation of wool and cotton into workable fiber. Then laborers, usually unmarried women, use a drop spindle to hand-spin the fibers into thread and yarn. The equipment is simple and easy to learn, but only a knucklehead would do it this way for commercial purposes. Spinning wheels have existed for 500 years in the Middle East, but they aren't allowed into Europe because they believe the increased production per employee will mean lower profits and more unemployment, apparently creating a larger textile market through lower prices and greater demand hasn't occurred to them. Currently, raw wool and cotton are dropped off at homes and small factories, and two weeks later, uh, the finished product is picked up. The workers can earn a few shillings. But they have a secret. They have been using a secret mechanical carding machine. They turn the crank or lead a donkey and the cylinder turns and the fibers separate automatically. 
Even at the paltry sums they are receiving, a machine can be paid for in four years. Louis Paul of Birmingham is the inventor, and he patents his machine this year, but he's been using it in secret since 1742. My take by Alex Shrugged, who puts these together. The flying shuttle loom, which cuts labor costs in half, is just coming into use in commercial numbers. Just wait until the spinning wheel and the spinning jenny are introduced in 1750s and 60s. British revenues from the production of wool and cotton products will jump from 200,000 pounds sterling annually, about $24 million in 2014 dollars, to about 40 million pounds sterling, or almost $5 billion dollars annually by the 1830s. I've provided a link to a video tutorial on how to produce yarn using a drop spindle. It's so simple you wonder why you aren't doing it yourself. That is, until you've done it by hand for a few hours, then you will know why. It's for small jobs, but once you see a drop spindle, you will soon realize you can make one yourself out of a hook, a dowel, and a coffee can lid. Then all you need is a sheep to sit still for two minutes. Uh, my take by this is, we're going to talk at the end of the show today about Some of the advancements in automation, but not from that standpoint, more about open source design and where I think things are going. And I think that people look back, you know, all the way back to the 1740s here and say, hey, this automation thing that supposedly eliminates jobs always does, but it always actually creates bigger markets and therefore more jobs. And I really believe things are changing this time. Um, and we're actually seeing a bifurcation between centralized and decentralized components of this. And what you actually see here is automation dragging people into centralization. And what I mean by that is, okay, so you have this woman, somebody drops some stuff out of her house, some, some raw wool or raw cotton, she has to go through it, comb it, and then turn it into yarn. And then they come back and pick it up. And she doesn't get paid much, but she does this. She also does this on her own time as she sees fit out of her own home. She doesn't have to go anywhere. She's basically an entrepreneur. She's basically an entrepreneur. And maybe she has other ways that she's making money. This is just one thing. And when this automation came in, now she can get a job working at a mill. In fact, there's more jobs than ever for people that want a job like that, but they lost the autonomy that they had. I think we're seeing the potential to regain that autonomy happen at the same time. We're also seeing a lot of jobs that are going to be eliminated. More on that in a bit. That's my take by Jack Spierko today. Um, next up, let me remind you, if you want to help support the show, go to survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more about the Members Support Brigade. It's a great deal. That's all I'll say about it today. Let's, let's get into the, uh, the main topic of today's show right away. So I want to let you guys know we had a great work with Jack weekend Saturday. Um, I really want to thank everybody that came. I think we had 16 people in attendance. I think everybody had a blast. Uh, I think everybody really uh, had a great time, not just you know coming and hanging out with me, but hanging out with each other working with each other, getting to know each other. Uh, while it was about 3 o'clock in the afternoon before we got here, Nick Ferguson was here for the last few hours of the meetup. Uh, helped a lot of people out with design ideas and considerations. And uh, he's just an all-around nice guy. But um, I'm going to be doing this again. I'm going to be doing another one. This one's going to be uh, not next weekend, but the following weekend, uh, May 2nd, 2016. Uh, no, April, so April 2nd, 2016. Thank God it's not May yet. I don't have time for it to be May yet. Uh, April 2nd, 2016, we're going to be repurposing one of my fences and going from a three-paddock system to a four-paddock system. This is actually going to be a really quick one, guys. The work we're going to do, I think, will be done in two hours. Uh, maybe we'll have to come back and do a little bit more after concrete sets and stuff like that, but this is going to be easy for a small group to do. And... Um, 
we're gonna you know, make it pretty much a hangout and and learn from each other and 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 go over your prints and plans like we did in this one and uh, get to know each other type of thing. So it's kind of like we're doing a little bit of work, but it's also kind of a great great day of hanging out, uh, having great drink, great food. Uh, and I think everybody enjoyed the food. We had sausage, we had chicken tacos, uh, I had, uh, cider and meat on tap. It was a pretty great deal. And I want to kind of, you know, point out the irony again that I get attacked sometimes for charging people to work is the way they put it. Um, it, it it's really kind of funny because I think, I don't think you could for 15 bucks, uh, get a better experience than we try to provide you. So if you can come out on the second, I'd love to have you here, and I think we'll be able to uh, maybe walk the property a little bit better than I did this time. My knee's getting better every day, and uh, I'll be able to uh, do a pretty good property tour, and we should be well into, you know, kind of fruit set and all, and have a lot more to show you and talk about. Uh, real quick before I get into the first uh, feedback today, I also want to let you guys know if you're local and you've been wanting some of our duck eggs, we have a really good inventory now. Uh, we're about to go ahead and run another ad like we do when we get our inventories up, and it'll probably go down really quick, but... Uh, if you want some of our eggs, just go to ninemile.farm. You can check out our duck eggs and uh, come on by and pick some up. Uh, so first question today comes from a guy named Tom. Tom says, what's the best uh, shotgun for me to start my 12-year-old son out with? Uh, I want to start uh, training him to shoot, and hope hopefully he'll be able to hunt doves with me this fall. And I'm going between several different options, including single shots, pumps, semi-autos, uh, and, and double barrels. I'm really not sure what I should get him. I don't mind spending more money if that makes sense, but I'd like to keep it economical as a starting gun. And what would you do? Um, well, the first shotgun I got my son, I immediately determined was a mistake for a young, small shooter who was not yet ready um, for the beating that even a 20-gauge gives in a, a single shot. So I bought my son a combo, an NEF single-shot combo. So it was a uh, .357 Magnum uh, rifle barrel and a 20-gauge um, uh, shotgun barrel single-shot uh, setup. You swallowed the barrels out. And you can go buy that exact same gun just in the shotgun for about $85 new, I think, even today, maybe less than $100, bucks, right? So it's a short barrel, short stock, kid-framed, under $100, bucks. Very safe, because you, you have to cock it to be able to fire it. Um, so if that hammer's not cocked, you know it's not going to go off. You've only got a single shot. Seems like a good idea. And the truth is, the way those small single shot shotguns are, they just beat the hell out of kids. Especially kids that are still learning form and how to get the gun. And when you're getting killed by a gun, and somebody's trying to teach you form so that you won't get killed by the gun, since you're scared, you won't get into the form and you keep, it's like a chronic acceleration of the problem so i popped a 410 barrel on there for him and we kept him shooting but what i ended up doing was i went out and i got him what i would recommend as the the best choice though there's other good choice it's just like my part like what would you do an 870 express pump 20 gauge youth model so it has a bit shorter of a stock so i think the length of pulls like 12 and a half versus 13 and a half uh, on the stock, I could be wrong about that, but it's somewhere in that. It's got a shorter barrel. I believe the barrel's a 21 or 22-inch barrel. It's Because it's the 20-gauge 870, it's a lighter frame. Now, it's the exact same frame uh, you know, with a, a longer barrel and a longer stock that you would get if you bought the quote-unquote adult model 20-gauge 870. What I'm just saying is when you go from 12 to 20-gauge, they don't just put a different barrel on it and change the, the, the uh, 
kind of the inside dimensions, the entire frame of the 870 is a smaller, lighter frame gun. So it's it's light, but it's not as light. Actually, it's lighter in some ways than um, the NEF because the NEF's got all this weight in the back and this really light barrel, and it just is kind of a beating. Like it's well balanced, and it fits a small shooter comfortably. And you give them low brass target loads, and you take them out and you shoot skeet and whatnot. And if you want them to have a single shot, basically, then cut a piece of that. Like, you know, you, that's what you want for your initial training, because I know some people do. Take, take it apart, pull that plastic plug out that they give you to plugs it from, you know, uh, five shell capacity to, to, to three shell capacity. Basically, it lets you put two in the magazine. And just cut yourself a piece of wooden dowel that, that will effectively plug it so you can't get a single round into the magazine and it can be loaded from the top and you can work with them as a single shot basically then until you're confident and I did not do that as a kid I did not do that with my son but I, that's my solution to people that want that otherwise start teaching them to actually cycle the weapon and, and, and to use it and to do follow up shots on targets and things like that and I think it's probably the best balance of cost value utility and something that turns into a lifelong thing that they'll own for the rest of their lives and probably hand to their, their child or grandchild someday. Um, the 12-gauge is the best all-around shotgun shell. There's just no doubt about it. When you want versatility, nothing beats the 12. But the 20 is damn good. And I still, if I'm going to hunt squirrels or something or shoot quail over a dog, would rather have a 20 than a 12. Because I'm, I don't want to blow the hell out of something up close. I want a little bit less shot and a little bit less oof. It's also a lighter. I mean, all of the every 20 gauge I own, if I have the 12 equivalent, it's lighter, so it's it's less of a pain in the ass to carry around. So I see being able to use this as an adult, and to use this as an adult, what would you do? You would buy a new stock for it. They're inexpensive because it's the Express kind of plain Jane color, and you just take the the shorter stock off and put the longer stock on. Now you've got a short-barreled, great brush shotgun. You want a longer siding plane? And they all come with rim choke now, so you can change the chokes out. You just go out and buy yourself like a 26- or 28-inch barrel for it. Pop that on there. Now you've got the ability to have a short, compact shotgun or more of a full-size, longer sight radius shotgun. And, you know, you can, you can hunt with high brass, you know, right lows. You can hunt turkey and waterfowl and everything else with a 20-gauge. you got a little less effective range than a 12 but it's there, it's available, it works. Uh, you can go out eventually and buy a slug barrel for it if you want to. They make rifled slug barrels that either have iron sights on them or have a cantilever where you can actually mount an optic on it. So you could literally have a gun that you buy your son right now that you could use to go dove hunting with you that would be an effective 100-yard deer gun in the future. They could grow with him, and you know you can get them street price under 300 bucks. And... Yes, there's Winchester pumps and Mossberg pumps that technically would do all of the same things, but there's greater availability in aftermarket parts and manufacturer parts for the 870 than any other shotgun out there. And I can really see a young person, especially, I mean, dove hunting, generally with dove hunting, you're, you're standing in a tree line, you're taking passing shots and crossing shots and passover shots, right? Or shots coming. So you're, you're not taking a lot of long shots, with, with doves. And it's a small bird, it only needs so much killing. So I can see a young man coming up with that gun, getting a little bit bigger, putting a new stock on it, maybe getting another barrel for it, 
you're still into it for less than 500 bucks at that point. You can still reverse the configuration using that gun, coming up as a hunter, and, and, and deciding, well, this is for certain things now because now I've got my 12 gauge, you know, semi auto, or, you know, if you like over and unders or what have you, kind of go to that for some other things. But always having that gun and one day have his own son that he wants to take out to the dove field for the first time and just take that old stock and pop it back on, that old barrel and pop it back on, and that gun will run the way it did the other day it was given to him. I, I, I really think that that's, that's your best value for a new shooter. And I think it's a gun that let's say he let's say it's not even a kid thing at first. He gets older. He meets a woman. That woman and him, you know, kind of fit together well in each other's lifestyle. She wants to learn how to shoot. Smaller framed individual. It's it's a great gun to teach your wife to shoot with. It, it's a very hard thing to make a case against that gun with its reliability, its dependability. It's the most popular shotgun in America, and, and it has been for a very very long time. And there's a reason. So that that's what I would do. Uh, hopefully that makes sense. Next up, um, somebody sent me this video. And the title of the video is called Behold the Samurai Workbench. And it's by a guy with a YouTube channel. And his YouTube handle is the Samurai Carpenter. And it is a very much kind of master carpenter's bench that he designs. I can't really play any of the audio from the video for you because there's actually very little discussion in it. It's pretty much a time-lapse video of the creation of this bench and then a little bit of him talking at the end, which is actually really cool. And I thought about even playing like the 30 seconds of him talking at the end because it talks about, you know, again, like we just talked about with a gun, something you'd hand down to your kids. But I think the video would be better taken in, you know, if you want to see it, look it up. I want to kind of talk about this type of an endeavor, building something like this, because he doesn't say this, and he I haven't looked at the rest of his channel, so he may have, but this type of a workbench is something that I've seen before, different versions of, and I've seen basically Asian versions and European versions, and... It is designed with no fasteners. It's all different types of joints. And it has sliders in different places where pins and things can go in so that it can act as a vise and hold wood in just countless configurations. And it's gorgeous. It's built with, it looks like walnut and oak and some other hardwoods with different inlays. And it is an incredibly functional workbench, but a lot of what you could do with it you could do if you just built a crappy workbench and got a couple of vices and some clamps and stuff like that. Uh, maybe not quite as as good, but good enough for government work, as they say, right? So why does someone build a workbench like this? Historically, when a master carpenter, master woodworker is probably a better word for this because carpenter we're talking more about housing and this could be anything from yes custom designed stuff for housing or custom designed cabinetry or anything with woodwork but a master would take on an apprentice as that apprentice came up one of the first major things that that apprentice would do is build their own workbench like this in fact it might take them a very very long time to actually complete their bench Because they would be doing all these tasks for their teacher. And at the same time, they're working on their bench. And as they kind of move into what we would think of, like, they're not really their own master yet, but they're kind of in that journeyman phase. 
where eventually they are going to leave, or maybe just out of devotion to their teacher, they're going to stay and work with them. And eventually one day, maybe even, because the way things used to work like this a lot of times was that apprentice, whether they were a son or almost like an adopted son, eventually when the master stopped work, took over for him. They would build that bench, and it was like a rite of passage. So it wasn't just the functionality of the bench, but if you actually build something like this, by the time that you've completed it, you've learned all of the things you need to be able to, like, like I would say today, to be a master carpenter. I think at the time, or master woodworker, at the time it was seen like you still got a way to go. But this is not something for everyone. I'm going to be honest. I probably won't build one of these. But I think anybody can look at it and learn from it. And I don't mean necessarily learn how to do it. I mean learn from the concept. When you see the intricate way these joints are fitted together and the, co the care and the time that goes into producing something like this, you can start to say to yourself, even if it's not woodworking that does this for me, where could this concept transcend into my skill development for something that's important to me? Whether it's as, you know, something as technological as coding computers or something as, as, as more horticultural as grafting trees. Like building your own grafting setup or something. I mean, there's a lot to be said for instead of just trying to instantly be able to do something, to actually create a path for yourself that takes work, that in many ways the journey to the beginning is actually the perfection of the craft. That's kind of how I look at these benches. And I wish I could find the video that I watched several years ago about this type of craft, this type of crafting of a bench to, to, to give you as well. So if anybody knows of anything like that, I'd, I'd love to hear from you about it in the show notes or uh, in the comments of the show notes today or uh, email me about it because I'd like to share that with people too. But again, it's called the Samurai Workbench. He does sell an ebook with um, the plans to build one of your own if you'd like to. And again, though, I want to say, I think what he's done is amazing, but it's not the only thing like this. There are other versions of this type of, of amazing craftsmanship in workbenches. Uh, I think he also has a video tutorial on the whole thing, like a three-hour video tutorial. I don't know if it comes with the book or not. It doesn't have affiliate links. I'm not selling it. I'm not even endorsing it. I'm just saying it's something really cool that I think members of this community would like to take in, whether it's just to look at it and realize how awesome it is or to possibly decide this is the type of a project you want to take on yourself. So there will be a link called the Samurai Workbench in today's show notes. You can check it out. Um, the next one will probably almost make your brain shoot out of your eyes. Um, I'll actually read a certain line in it that'll dial it back just a little bit right before your brain shoot out of your eyes. Um, th this is one of those things that it starts to show you the cancer that's infecting America's mentality. It really is a cancer. Uh, this is on MSN News. That already tells you we're heading downhill fast. It's called Equitable. It's an app that will soon be out that splits bills according to the wage gap. Yes, according to the wage gap. So here's reading the article for you. A new app can help you check your privilege when it comes time to split the check. Equitable takes a restaurant bill and divides it by the number of diners and adjusts how much each person owes based on a statistical wage gap between genders and races. So a white man out for dinner with a black woman would fork over more cash to cover the bill. 
It doesn't split the bill equally. It splits the bill equitably, said the app's creator, Luna Malbrox, who noted that the wage gap calculation is based on data from the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics. Malbrox, a comedian and anti-bias educator from California, admits the app has its tongue planted firmly in cheek. That's what makes your eyes not explode. That he's not totally serious about this, but says it can be a fun way to start a conversation about a serious issue. Quote, I hope it helps people think a little bit more about how the wage gap affects different people differently, end quote, she said. In Canada, a recent report showed women earn an average of $8,000 less a year than men, a wide ga a wage gap that's twice the global average. Malbrook said the gap grows larger when factors like race or disability are factored in. Equitable plans to launch on iOS later this week. Okay. The main reason I covered this isn't so I can just beat this person up, because I'm not even going to. I want to actually discuss this issue a little bit from a standpoint of like using our effing brains. I am absolutely fed up and tired with the, the nonsensical connotation that women, generally is the one that you hear most often, do the same work as a man for a lower wage. I'm an entrepreneur and have been for most of my life. At one time, I had hiring and firing decision capacity uh, for headcounts from 50 to 100 people, okay? And including determination setting of wages, okay? If I could hire women to do the exact same job as a man for 20% less and get the same performance in every aspect, in every way for the niches that I'm hiring in, I would have absolutely never hired a single man in my life because I'd have to be an idiot to do so. If I literally can drive my wages down 20% just by hiring women, well, why wouldn't I do it? Well, here's why. In many instances, some of the positions I was hiring for, when we looked at all the applicants that came in, there were no women. In other instances, the women that applied were completely unqualified for the job. So they weren't offered any job at all. In some instances, the women that applied were not qualified for the job, but were qualified for other things we had available. So they were offered that if they wanted it. And it, yes, it might have paid less. But they weren't doing the same job as the person that did get hired for the job that we were trying to actually fill when they responded. And in other instances, the women were qualified for those jobs, and they were hired, and they were paid according to their skill set, ability, commitment, etc., And the, 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 the gender that they happened to be had absolutely nothing, nothing at all to do with the wage that they were offered. It wasn't even a consideration. In fact, at the point that I was at right before I started doing TSP full-time, working with Neil Franklin, and I had an officer's position on the board in all three of his major corporations, the two highest-paid people we had, The two highest paid people in all the companies, including Neil and I, they were paid more than we paid ourselves, were both women. Because they were good at what they did, they had the qualifications we needed, and therefore we hired them. So, with that being said, and the fact that most people that are entrepreneurs that actually hire people think exactly the way I just described, whether you believe it or not, why is there a wage gap between men and women? And the reason, and you may not like it if you're a woman, but the reason is flatly true. In general, women are not as willing to sacrifice and devote themselves to their careers as men are. Period. And across the averages, it creates this wage gap that apparently is there, but really isn't. Because a, 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 a male employee 
that has commitment issues, doesn't work as hard as I would like, whatever, is going to advance less rapidly than his, his peers. It has nothing to do with the gender, but I do believe that the gender gap is created by this, I'm being honest, I never had to deal with men saying, well, I have to take off work because I have to go to my kids' whatever, right, in the middle of the day. And I had women that wanted to do it, and we made as much allowance for stuff like that as we can, but it affects the opportunity to go forward in a company. Because I'm not hiring you to work 36 hours a week. I'm hiring you to work 45 or 50 or 60 or whatever it takes, especially in high-performing positions. There's a difference between being a person that comes into a factory, sits down and assembles parts or something like that, or answers a phone or, or whatever. But when you have somebody that's developing accounts in a sales position, in, in a, a position of a marketing position when you actually have outside clients you're developing platforms for, the, the people that advance are the ones that dedicate themselves to the performance of that job at the highest level and make sacrifices for it. And you can tell me that whether I am a woman and I've sacrificed, and you may be, and you might be like one of these two women that I mentioned that worked for, for Neil's company that were paid, by the way, close to 200000 a year apiece. Oh, in fact, wait a minute. You know what? There was a, The three highest paid people in that group of companies were female. The three highest. Because our, our VP of recruiting was the third highest paid person in the company, and she was a female. So if you're like that, if you're willing to make that commitment, then you can rise to those top positions. Less women do it than men, and that creates a disparity across the average And that's just factual. If you want to talk about it race-based, look at inner-city schools. Look at the quality of education that more people of color start with than, than, than white people. And you can see that there. Because, in general, Asians do better than white people because they take their education more seriously. So that's not, that's not prejudice. That's performance. And this whole check-your-privilege shit, what this is designed to do is to give people an excuse so that they don't have to try harder, they don't have to work harder. And to create this, this, this concept that, that companies and corporations and, and entrepreneurs owe it to you to give you a job. Or like their purpose should be to make jobs so that you can have one. Well, the purpose of being an entrepreneur is to develop value and sell it to others based on their perception of that value and do a good job for your customers. Whether you do that with or without employees, doesn't matter. <laughs> you know, how, how well you treat your employees, that's going to determine what quality of employee you can get. Very, very much so. That's part of cultural capital in a company. But the problem that we have is, is, is a mentality that employment exists for you. Like, that's why companies create jobs for you. No, they create jobs to, to fulfill the needs they have to deliver their products and services. And instead of worrying about the so-called wage gaps, what we actually need to be teaching people is how to figure out what they're actually really good at and what their actual best fits are for what they want in their life. Because let me tell you part of this whole concept that women are less willing to sacrifice than men, again, in general. I've known women that are cutthroat, hardcore business people with, with, with greater willing to sacrifice than I've ever had. 
So that's, but that's not the aggregate average. It's because in general, women are more concerned about their day-to-day family life than men. It's not good. It's not bad. It's different. Guys want to be there for the kids, baseball games and stuff like that too, but men are much more likely to say, you know what, Billy has his baseball games on Saturdays. I don't need to be at every freaking practice. Where women tend to want to be at least partially involved on a higher level with the things that are going on. It's that their priorities are more centered around that portion of their lives. So instead of worrying about the fact that, well, I'm not going to be made VP of sales, well, of course you're not, right? If I got a guy that's working 65 hours a week, killing himself, going anywhere, doing everything to develop accounts for my company, and you work 40 hours and you're gone, right, and you take every vacation day you have and he doesn't, if I need to get you on Saturday and I can't but I can get him, when an opportunity arises for a promotion, he's getting it. And if I got a guy that's like the first one and a woman that's living the, the life of the second one, then she's going to get it. So instead of worrying about that, what you need to determine and what people need to be doing, and this is men, women, black, white, yellow, orange, fuchsia, okay? Inside out of such a thing ever exists, Right? Instead of worrying about what somebody else is doing, what do you want? What do you want? What's important to you? What are your priorities? And how does either income from entrepreneurship or employment income best fit to your lifestyle so that you can have what you want instead of what somebody else tells you you should have? Because this concept that I'm going to pay two people the same wage just because I'm supposed to versus based on their performance is nonsensical. And it ain't going to happen, and it's never going to happen. It's never going to happen. And in the places where you would think the problem would be most cumbersome, right? the most logical places where two people really are doing the same job, most places like that, factories, etc., They have a stated starting wage for that entry-level position. And they pay everybody in that position the same. And there's the least disparity in those low-level employments. There really is. But in the end, when you deal with any individual entrepreneur that's hiring you for a job, if I'm hiring you, this is my goals. I want to pay you no more than I have to to keep you happy and keep you working hard. Period. And we're going to negotiate that wage. So if I do have two people that come in applying for and I have two positions that are the same thing, and one ends up with a lower starting wage than the other, they weren't as good of a negotiator. They weren't able to make the case to me. And in many instances, women aren't good at that type of negotiation. Because we don't teach them to be. A lot of guys suck at it too. But when you're dealing with high-level positions, I expect you to be good at negotiations. In fact, the fact that you're not good at negotiations tells me right there that you're worth less to me than the person that is because I'm going to have you negotiating on my behalf with customers and partners, etc. So I want a good negotiator. So the less effective you are at negotiating with me, the less I'm going to pay you, not just because I can, but because right there you've shown me that I'm getting less than I'm expecting to get. And the only way you're getting the job at that point 
is that there was no, some there was nobody that was better all around. So I'm settling for you. Of course you're getting a less wage. Does that sound harsh? Does that sound unfair? Does that sound mean? Does that sound nasty? Does that sound like it's not the way it should be? Fine. It's the way that it is. It's the real world, folks. This is how decisions get made in business every single flipping day. And I totally understand the woman that says, you know what? Or the man that says, you know what? I show up at 8, I leave at 5, I don't want to hear from you. I don't want anything to do with anything with work except during those hours that I'm paid on the clock. I want every vacation day you promised me. If I take a couple extra sick, sick days, even when I'm not sick, they're my sick days. This is, I, this is, you offered this package. I'm taking this employment package the way it is. Fine. And as long as you do your job, you have a solid job, you're not going to lose your job as long as the revenue's there, we'll keep you employed, and you're exactly what we need in that type of position. You want to move up? You want to move up? You don't do the minimum and move up. Welcome to real life. That's the way that it is. Check your privilege, my ass. It's not a privilege. It's how seriously you take an opportunity. And again, kind of really important, pointing out the most important part. You figuring out the opportunities that lead you to what you want, not what other people say you're supposed to have. With that, let's take a break here and go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today, Chef Keith Snow. Chef Keith is an awesome guy. He's a member of our expert council, long-term sponsor of the show, and he just has an awesome website. If you get over to HarvestEating.com, you're going to find all kinds of great stuff. First, you can find the stuff that he sells, his organic teas, his spices, seasoning mixes, and other products. I use Chef Keith's spices and seasoning mixes on a daily basis, pretty much. Uh, if I'm not re reaching for uh, the northern Italian, I'm probably reaching for low and slow or Montana steak or the new prime rib stuff or the chicken curry. It's just all awesome. He also teaches you how to focus on the technique over the recipe and cooking, how to make cooking a life skill, how to cook seasonally and locally. He's got a lot of great videos on his website, a lot of great blog posts, a lot of great recipes, and he's got an awesome podcast. You can find it all at HarvestEating.com. And remember, Chef Keith is a member of our expert council. If you have a question about cooking, you get it into me, and we'll get you an answer for it on a Friday show. Chef Keith Snow at HarvestEating.com, long-term sponsor, great partner, great fellow prepper, and just one of the most awesome guys you'll ever meet. Check out his website again today at HarvestEating.com. Sponsor of the day number two today is the TSP Business Directory. If you want to do business with other members of this community, the directory is the perfect place to find them or be found by them. Every business listed in our directory is part of the TSP community. Small businesses providing great products and services for things you probably buy frequently. So doesn't it just make sense to do business with our community when you can? Hey, and when you do business with a Survival Podcast community member on the directory, please leave a review. This will help other members know who to do business with and provides feedback to help all of our community members improve their customer service. The business directory is a spam-free and feature-rich way to find what you need or to be found by those that need what you have. Check out the business directory by going to the Survival Podcast .com and clicking on the directory banner with a tab at the top that says Business Directory. This one comes from Joe. It says, well, no shit. Pensions are going to bust the global economy. You've been saying these sorts of things for a while now. Interesting to see that the Wall Street Journal is reporting on it. I wonder what the true number really is. Thanks for all you do, Joe. That's an interesting question. What is the true number of these, these pensions that make global debt actually triple what we thought it is? And is that number even accurate? Here we go. Government debt in the 20 industrialized countries 
uh, in 20 industrialized countries now stands at $44 trillion. Um, keep in mind, the, the annual budget uh, for U.S. government ranges between high years, low years, you know, one and a half to three and a half trillion dollars over the last 10 years, okay? Um, $44 trillion that 20 companies uh, have in debt, officially reported, uh, <laughs> which is, is really kind of funny, isn't it? Because uh, the U.S. debt is currently $19 trillion, so if there's 20 countries and we owe $19 trillion, um, I wonder what those other 19 countries are. You would think that we have to actually be in that number, so we owe half of it is the way to look at it. Uh, let me keep reading, though. But it's actually a lot more than that. According to a new report, after factoring in public pension and other retirement liabilities, the debt levels nearly triple to a staggering $122 trillion. Uh, that's the debt level that we have globally from these 20 industrialized countries. That's the math, according to a new report from Citigroup in a report called The Coming Pension Crisis, uh, which analyzed government pension liabilities from 20 countries that are members of the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. Quote, it's really a ticking time bone, end quote, said Charles Millard, city's head of pension relations and former head of the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation, the U.S. safety net for private sector pensions. Let me put that in perspective. This is the guy that, it, that is the PR guy. Uh, for the, the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation. That means they're the people that, if a pension fails, they're supposed to be the insurance for it. Okay? He says it's a ticking time bomb. To put the unstated debt levels in perspective, the additional unstated $78 trillion in retirement-related debt is equivalent to a single year of global economic output. That's the global GDP. City researchers measured government pension liabilities, a combination of Social Security and public sector pension obligations, finding the average country was carrying retirement debt of 190% versus gross domestic product, well above the 100% threshold that many experts consider concerning. Imagine you, you, imagine, imagine you thought your mortgage was $440,000, but the bank called up and said it was $1.3 million. That's really what we're facing. Among the 20 countries analyzed, Australia's retirement situation was on surest footing, with pension liabilities less than 50% of GDP. Poland's pension liabilities were more than 350% of GDP, the highest. The U.S. was just over 100% of GDP, ranks third lowest, trailing only Australia and Canada's levels of 90%. So we're in the best shape, but 100% is considered deeply troubling. It would be. Imagine you had a company that did... Uh, $10 million a year. But your, your obligation to people that all retired, retired from it was $10 million. That's what we're talking about. Put it in perspective. All right. Unfunded pension and retirement liabilities aren't budget costs which must be paid off today, but the debts play strain on government budgets as they balloon in size. One potential solution would be to borrow a strategy employed by the Netherlands where they use collective defined contribution system. The system resembles a 401k account, though instead of individuals choosing the investment strategy, the funds are pooled together and managed by money managers. Oh, see? This is so much more of what Jack's been saying than just what it looks like Jack's been saying. What else have I said they want to do? They want to force people 
into a new form of retirement account, Social Security 2.0, where you contribute money, you get automatically enrolled, your, your employer makes you have to do this, and they put all the money into a big giant fund, and they say it's different from Social Security because it actually is going to be invested in the market, and they're going to employ people to invest it on your behalf. And you'll just be signed up for it whether you like it or not, and that's exactly one of the many things they're looking to do here. The other thing they're looking to do is they're they're already starting to kind of point at, hey, this is a problem, this is a problem, this is a problem. It is a problem, but what is their what do they gain, the people in control, by telling you that it's a problem? What do they get out of it? Well, they get to set us up to start whittling away people's pensions. And I'll tell you why this number is low. So if I go, so it's remember what it says. It says that we have Because of these pensions, $122 trillion in actual debt compared to the $44 trillion that we think we have in debt. There's a problem with that number. Most of that debt is actually visible. And it's visible in the form of what we call unfunded liabilities. Unfunded liabilities. In other words, these are... Expenses that the nation will have to bear that we already know we don't have money for. It's future debt that we can already calculate accumulating against our inability to pay it. The U.S. alone has unfunded liabilities of $101 trillion. $101 trillion. The majority of that, the majority of that is Social Security and Medicare liability. So it's interesting. In fact, the unfunded Social Security liabilities right now are $14 trillion. And the Medicare, everybody's worried about Social Security, Medicare unfunded liabilities right now are $27 trillion. Now, if we said, let's divide that up against all U.S. taxpayers, How much are, are you and I on the hook for in unfunded liabilities? If, if we decided, you know what, as a nation, we, we've decided we don't like this. Let's everybody that actually works for a living pony up some money. Let's, let's set it back to zero and, 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 and say it was a bad, bad party to a bad hangover and walk away from it. Not going to happen. $848,653 you're on the hook for in unfunded liabilities. There's a lot of people will never earn $800,000. $48,000 in total wages in their lifetime. During their entire working life, they won't earn that much money. You're a pretty low-level employee to not, but there's plenty that won't. Work part-time, whatever. And those, those are people that do pay taxes that do have an income. If you actually looked at it against people that, let's say, had uh, salaries in excess of $100,000, then, then the, the liability per taxpayer would probably be more along the lines of two, three, four million dollars or more. It can't be done. It can't be paid. And it's a fantasy that it can be paid. It's a it's an absolute fantasy. And it tells you that eventually our economic system has to fail. It has to. There's no way around it. But this is where the doomsday mentality fails to compensate with reality. 
You know, the, the scenario that only gold and silver will be worth money, there'll be riots and wars in the streets, and not just riots, but like full-scale, every city in America burn the ashes to the ground, the government completely collapses and falls apart, uh, we, 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 we rise up in factions on both sides of each other and fight the Red Dawn War type thing. This is not how economics work, and this is how not how economic collapses have ever worked, ever in history. It isn't. And the people running this economic system are doing it for their own gain. They're not doing it to bankrupt themselves. And what is most likely to happen, and I've been saying this for eight years now, and I have never claimed to know when, is that there will be some kind of a giant economic reset where they're going to change the monetary system yet again. And it may go into, you know, I used to say that I, I thought there's a very good chance that all the gold bugs would get their way and then find out how bad it sucked, that they would go back to a monetary system with some sort of a gold backing or a commodity backing, gold, silver, national reserves, things like that, which would really fit the globalist agenda because then the nation would actually go into hawk for its actual assets. And the banks could end up owning nations more so than they do now. Um, though at this point, as more and more we see acceptance of blockchain-like technology, moving to a digitized currency system, getting rid of cash, which the, the globalists have on the the globalists and and the statists have always wanted to get rid of cash. Because if you get rid of cash and you make all transactions electronic, you're able to tax every every cent that ever moves at any time. So there's there's an opportunity there. And what people don't understand there's been economic collapses in the last 120 years. The the Federal Reserve Act of 1913 was an economic collapse. But it was a monetary reset collapse. It took the ability so the US defaulted on its money and gave power of monetary creation to the banks. In 1933, when FDR took us to a, instead of a full gold standard, to basically, the best easy way to think about it is a partial gold standard. It was a collapse. The U.S., again, reneged on its, it, it, its, its promise to its currency. And it devalued its money by, what, 13 bucks versus 20. So uh, it was 35 bucks or something like that, so 15 bucks, like almost double. Because the $20 gold piece became very, very quickly, as paper replaced it, uh, about $35. So that devalued what each dollar could buy with massive inflation that if we weren't in the middle of a war would have been much more visible. So that was a collapse. Then in, in 1964, under the Coinage Act, when we devalued the, the silver currency in circulation, that was also a monetary collapse. And then in 1971, when Nixon took us completely off the gold standard, and then in 75, when gold was made legal for, for private ownership again, we actually saw the results of it. And that's why gold skyrocketed. It didn't skyrocket. It's finally set free and could tell the truth once it began to trade in private commodity exchange again. We, that was also a default. The U.S. had always pledged that there was a certain amount of gold in exchange for dollars. And it said, no, we're not going to do that. These are all now. I think what's coming because of this stuff is much worse. But the the playbook again ends up being the same. And the the, the danger of thinking, oh, it's going to be Red Dawn or whatever. It's going to be war. And we're going to be fighting with each other and killing each other and shooting each other. And the UN troops are going to come gas us or some stupid shit like that. It is twofold. One, 
it leads you to make poor decisions about business building, investing today, developing an actual quality of life right now because it's all about this bunker preparedness mentality for something that may never happen in your lifetime or how it happens will be so radically different from what you've prepared for that you've wasted all those resources. And the other thing it does is it actually creates less preparedness because people pre prepare for one type of scenario only. They don't actually prepare for Argentina or what's going on in Greece today. This is that's what you need to look at is is what has this looked like in nations where it's where it's happened. But the US is bigger and it'll be worse. Uh-huh, but it'll also be the same. It'll be the same types of things. Yes, I think you need to be able to defend yourself. I think crime will go through the roof. I think we'll have rogue gangs. Right? But I don't I think this concept that that it's just going to be like in the first six months half the people will be dead. The government will be gone. They'll just vanish like a fart in the wind. Um, it'll be without rule of law everywhere. I think it's just preposterous. Because in the end, this is what you have to understand. Money's fake anyway. Money's fake anyway. There's no money. And it, you're saying, well, it used to be real because it was gold. It's still fake. It's still fake. There's a value placed on these things through regulation and control and management, and the ability to fulfill tax obligations with it. And it's all about psychology. And it's all about a collective belief in the accounting methodology we call money. Because that's all money really is, is an accounting methodology. I'm not saying there's a way out of it. There's a metamorphosis through it that's going to screw everybody really bad. So you better build up the tangible things in your life today. Let's go on and take another one. Um, next up's an email from somebody. We'll talk a little politics here. I'll try to keep this segment short, but it's an interesting thing to look at as to how what we just talked about leads into people begging for a solution from the people that, that caused the problem. You know, the, the, the concept of handing, you know, gasoline and, and matches to the arsonist and asking them to use it to put the fire out, basically. I'll link to the full referenced article, but I'm going to only read the excerpt that uh, Andrew re re uh, sent here. Uh, here's what he said. He says, Jack was right, sort of. You mentioned in today's episode that you may have missed the mark on your strongman leader in 2016, i.e. Trump won't win versus Hillary. However... Don't you doubt for a second that this is a trend that ends with Trump. Uh, recent political science research gives credence to the likelihood of seeing an increasing number of Trump types in our future elections. The linked article provides an interesting breakdown of the Trump phenomenon from the perspective of authoritarianism appeal in a growing base of voters. Uh, quotes below. Quote, McWilliams studies authoritarianism, not actual dictators, but rather the psychological profile of individual voters that is characterized by a desire for order and fear of outsiders. People who score high in authoritarianism when they feel threatened look for strong leaders who promise to take whatever action necessary to protect them from outsiders and prevent the changes they fear. Together, those three insights added up to one terrifying theory, that if social change and physical threats coincided at the same time, It could awaken a potentially enormous population of American authoritarians who would demand a strongman leader and extreme, end the extreme policies necessary in their view to meet the rising threats. 
So just for those that are new to the show, my, my concept that we would see is the rise of a strongman in 2016, that was expressed when George W. Bush was still president, and I said Obama will win the next election. What I said next was he'll get a lot of things done that you don't like, and you're not going to stop it, unfortunately. That by the end of his second term, he'll look completely incompetent. I think all of that's come to pass. Uh, and th that would lead to a shift in power to a Republican, and we would end up with a Republican strongman, a guy that would be far worse than anybody we've had so far, and that person would be able to get things done that are more of the leftist side of the agenda than the right side of the agenda under the bannerism of being Republican and, and do so in a way that would be met with cheers by the people that opposed it years before. Trump fits that model. I just don't see the guy winning. Of course, I didn't see him winning the nomination. I didn't see us talking about him at this point. Um, does Cruz fit that? I don't think so. I, I think Trump's the guy that can sell the American people if he's president on the concept of, yeah, they screwed up Obamacare, but we're going to fix it. And you end up with actual government takeover of health care completely, with people begging for it because they can't afford it anymore. Maybe you end up with a, a term of Hillary Clinton, one, like Bush Sr. following Reagan, right? And then then maybe it's 2020 that you see this happen. But I think this, this concept that Americans that fear beg for authority is, is absolutely the case. And it's exactly the dynamic I was talking about when I made that prediction over eight years ago now. Um how accurate it will be, or is it just off by a single election cycle, we have yet to see. Um, but, I mean, I'm, I'm a guy that when I make predictions, I go there, see, it happened, and I go, also, it, I don't know, it didn't happen, I'm evolving my, my theory, and in this case, I, I don't really know when this is coming, but I do know that this is coming. And before we go to the next subject today, The reason I can't see Donald Trump beating Hillary Clinton is that right now, if the election was held, Trump would lose. If we just, if they just said, okay, it's done, we have these two nominees, we're voting next week, right now, Trump would lose based on polls, based on counting, you know, what states would go which way. So the only way that changes is during the general campaign, Trump wins over enough of the voters, and motivates enough of non-voters to vote to change that, which is a monumentous thing to do. Or some sort of bomb drops that we learn something really, really, really bad about Clinton. Well, what the hell could we learn that's not as bad as all the other things that have fallen off that woman like, like freaking an egg out of a Teflon pan? There's, like, what else could you do to damage this person's reputation? Legitimately or illegitimately? How could you? And there's so much dirty laundry that people are unaware of about Trump. that they, They've kind of heard of it, but, you know, if it was actually brought up in the right context with the right marketing, it would, it would, it would erode what he already has, like throwing old ladies out of a building to build a casino under eminent domain and then having that casino go broke while the old lady was whipped out, right? That, that's real stuff that has actually happened. So 
I, I just don't see us ever getting to a point where he can overcome that. But I could be wrong. And, boy, let me tell you, it's going to be a hell of an ass-clown circus this 2016 election. So my advice is get busy planting your garden, focus on what you can do, because you're not going to influence this thing at all. Next up, we've got a uh, kind of a, a basic prepping question. Uh, this comes from Frank. Frank says, hi, Jack, I'm new to prepping. Always been kind of a homesteader in the past, and I first found you through your shows on permaculture. But your message of practical preparedness makes a lot of sense to me, too. What I'm really concerned about is storing food right now because it's where we're weakest. How should a newbie approach basic food prepping without freaking out? Um, so I think what, what happens to a lot of people like this, first of all, if you've been to homesteading and have been, um, you're probably better prepared food-wise than most people are anyway because you probably are already doing things like canning some of your own food and, and, and freezing food and producing food, right? So that's already like one of the actually the more advanced tenets of food storage. I, I have a whole show called The Holistic Approach to Food Storage. I'll put a link in the show notes uh, to it today where it's a, really a five-pronged approach to food storage. And it, we do in that show talk about things like long-term stuff like Um, you know, the providing pantry stuff, the mountain house stuff, number 10 cans, uh, big buckets full of rice and beans, all of that stuff. But it doesn't start there. And that's not where, and that's what freaks people out. Okay. So you start to kind of look at the situation. Maybe you look at something like the economic reality we just talked about earlier today. Or something does it for you to make you realize that all the grocery stores work on what's called just-in-time in inventory and that anything from an ice storm to a trucker strike to an economic collapse could cause a shortfall in food. And then you're going to have to feed your family and maybe some of your neighbors. And what the hell are you going to do? So you start researching it. And you start finding these things like $7,000 worth of you know, canned food in a pallet that they bring to your house with a forklift and unload a couple pallets and put it in your garage. And you think, well, I don't really know that I have money to do that. And does that make sense? And But if I don't do that, is it not enough? And, and what you have to do is take all of that fear and uncertainty, all of that trepidation, all of that concern about what you don't really control. And, and like everything else, we take what we don't control and we shelve it. And we say, maybe there's even some things I can do about that. But, okay, for the next two months, if I sit around worrying about that shit, I'll get nothing done. I'll be in the same position I'm in now, logistically, but spiritually and physically, I'll be in worse shape. I'll be closer to a heart attack. Now, you might not be so much closer to a heart attack you're going to drop over the next day, but stress on the body puts us closer to having a heart attack. I, I read a, a news story right around the time we changed the clock, and they said that freaking heart attacks go up when they change the time. Because you lose an hour, so it freaks people out. I mean, geez, I don't know how weak we've become, but that tells you stress on the human being is not a good thing. So what we need to do is de-stress. So my first step is an accountability of what you do have. So go around to every place you keep food in your home right now and find how much food you have that requires refrigeration and freezing and how much food you have that you don't. And, and, and play a little mental simulation with yourself. If, if right now the power went off, how long could you go? Like, how, what would you do to cook the food that has to be cooked, preserve the food that has to be prefer, pre preserved, using that first, and then using your, 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 you know, your shelf-stable foods? How would you, how would you do it? 
So you have to start first with, well, what do you have and how would you use it so you don't lose it? And, you know, think about things like if your power goes off for a day, you probably don't have anything to worry about. A day, you can throw a couple blankets over your refrigerator, keep it closed, and your food will be fine. Take out the ice cream and anything else that's going to flat out melt and eat it, and everything else will probably be okay for a day. And then start using it if the power doesn't come back. But how are you going to cook it? You're going to cook on the grill? Great. You're going to make spaghetti on the grill? If you eat spaghetti, you ever tried to boil water on a grill? So, you know, do you have a side burner? Do you have a, you know, like a propane turkey fryer? Well, that'll make boiled water really easy. How much propane? So first, just figure out how you would use what you have. Second thing is, get a food journal. A food journal is a fancy word for a notebook that you keep on the counter. And every time you, your kids, your, 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 your in-laws, your visitors, your dog, your cat, anytime anybody eats anything, write it down. And if you eat it twice in a week, instead of writing it down, put a check mark next to it. And when you get something over a few weeks that's got three or four check marks, put a big old star and double underline it. That becomes your shopping list for things to stock in abundance because you're already eating it. And start building up a store of that. If it's a, uh, if it's a food product that, that has a short shelf life or requires refrigeration or freezing, see if you can come up with a non-refrigeration required alternative. If you use a lot of chicken, you can get canned chicken. You don't have to go to special places or nothing. Costco sells a big old giant thing of canned white meat chicken. I think it's like 12 bucks. It's like five big ass cans. Is that top quality chicken you should be eating, you know, like free range you should be eating? No, but it's okay. It's okay to get by with. It's okay to use once in a while. You know, and you might find if you start looking that places like Costco have a lot of those in organic alternatives for not much more, which isn't perfect, but it's a hell of a lot better than factory farmed. So start building that up. And your first goal should be that you could stay home, feed your family in relative comfort, for two weeks without leaving the house. And and if you get to that point, you might find you're halfway there right now, and most homesteaders are. If, if you Once you get to that two-week period, I want you to sit down and think about all the things that would ever prevent you from leaving your, leaving your home, turning off your power, or making it where you can't go to the store for a few days or whatever because there is a problem. There are riots or something like that, like what happened in Baltimore. And it's just not safe. And think about how many of them are actually likely to last more than two weeks. And you'll probably think to yourself, you know, it's probably a 90% chance that if any of these bad things happen, within two to three weeks, things will be sort of back to normal and I can at least go get some other things. And it, 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 10% is only a small fraction of those that would go into the months and months thing. That we might have even bigger problems if that happened anyway. So then all of a sudden, all that stress and weight and freaking out just goes goes away. So then all you want to do now is we want to get to where we can do this for a month. So just do what you did a second time and get to 30 days. Now, again, I think maybe some of my other shows on food prep to get into that 90 day, six month or even one year food security situation. It's not everybody needs to be there. It's all about you, your life, your risk, your risk assessment, your risk tolerance. But you got to get more sophisticated to go past about a month to two months. You can do two months with store-bought, no specialization whatsoever, and some basic understanding of food preservation techniques like dehydration and canning and making things like biltong and jerky and stuff like that, smoking, curing. Um, 
But if you want to go much further than that in a practical way, then you got to start looking at, okay, for long-term storage, feeding other people rice and beans and five-gallon buckets and stuff like that. And I actually have a poll running on Facebook today for tomorrow's show. It can either be about guns, financial preparedness, or food preparedness. So you can go check out my Facebook page and put your vote in on that. And unlike the election coming up, your vote does count. And whichever one of those three topics gets the most votes will be tomorrow's show. So we could have a show tomorrow on food prepping. I don't know. We'll see. Um, the next question is really a very interesting one. It's one of those ones I have an answer. Also, the last question for the day. I have an answer and a thought, but I don't have a really good answer. I don't really know the exact answer to this. It'd be interesting to have an attorney that actually knows the like full answer to this. And I think it's still an incomplete answer, even if you knew all the answers, right? Like This is an evolving thing. But... It's on open source. It's from Ryan. Ryan says, how does a person release an invention open source, but at the same time protect it from being patented by someone else? I'm asking this based on the things that you said about Benjamin Franklin's wood stove in one of the history segments. Background. I have an unproven idea or theory I hope to prove out. In time, I would build a website on how other people can build my idea and a forum where people can post their improvements to it and have discussions about it. I don't even care if companies come along and start building it and selling it. I actually hope that's what would eventually happen. My concern is if someone comes along, likes the idea, finds out it's not patented, and goes out and patents it and forces me to shut down my site, or worse, wins some kind of judgment against me. How do you protect something so it remains open source? I know software is one thing. I understand things like Creative Commons for intellectual property, but I don't know anything that protects an actual physical invention. Just like to hear your thoughts. Thanks for all you do, Ryan from Utah. Um, on, on one aspect, the surest way to do it would be to take whatever about it that is patentable, actually patent it, and then declare free license to any and all users. That would prevent, because the people you're talking about here are generally what you would call patent trolls. They actually generally don't actually go out and secure a patent for a technology, and then actually use it. They go out and secure a patent for it by submitting the paperwork and spending the money you didn't, and then turn around and sue people who are using it to make a profit. Right. So that's, that's the most likely thing. So you could, you could do that, but the problem is it's very expensive to patent things. So now I kind of had this belief, because I never looked really deep into it, that there was just basically like basically open source patent, like exists for software for what you call hardware. Because when you say software and hardware, people think like all computers. But hardware is really any physical product is hardware. And then any kind of computing power, so to speak, is software. So like the Adreno is open source hardware that, yes, is an electronic controller. Anybody can make it, anybody can do it, anybody can modify it, whatever you want. It's used for a lot of automation things today. But So what actually prevents somebody from making Adrenos and looking at it and go, what's innovative about it, patenting that, and then saying, we have exclusive rights to the Adreno, uh, which, again, is a little microcontroller? And the answer is, I don't exactly know. And, and I'd love to hear from somebody that does. Like, can you basically put something out into the public space and say, this is mine, I created it, or my team created it, and anybody can use it and prevent that patent troll type, or a manufacturer legitimately says, hey, 
This is a great idea. Why don't we patent it and say only we can use it? You have to license it from us to use it. And again, I don't know. But I also think that there's a misunderstanding about patents. Let's say, like we talked about this, the Samurai Workbench today. Let's say that you come up with a new version of the Samurai Workbench, the Super Samurai Workbench. And it's, it does things that, that the original doesn't do. And it's easier to build and it's faster to build. And it requires less skill to build. And it, it, it's, it's made of metal instead of wood or whatever. And it, it, it doesn't, it's like it slices, it dices, it does everything, right? It's the, it's the ninja samurai workbench, right? There may not be a single thing about it that's patentable. Not a single thing. Now, in general, a lot of products like that, what they are is trademarked. So the guy that came up with the samurai workbench, I don't know if it's an original design, a modified design, whatever, but in any way, shape, or form, if no one else is using that term, he could satellite uh, a samurai workbench TM. And then he would have the right to the name, but not the physical product. And in many physical products, that's the case. Like, I'm sitting here looking at my French press mug that I make tea with. I don't think there's a patent on French press mugs. There may have been at some time. It's long since expired. And anybody can make a French press mug. What usually happens is within the creation of a product, as you try to figure out, well, how do I make it do this better, keep water hotter, hold tighter, something like that, The innovation comes in a piece of the product, and it's a certain way that things are fit together or cut or shaped or whatever that's unique and has not been done before and is not part, like you can't patent a dovetail joint for woodworking. It's been around forever. It's the way everybody does it. But in theory, you could come up with a new joint that's no, that there's no track record or history of existing for eternity In, in the word of woodworking, if you could come up with a new way to fit wood together, in theory, you should be able to patent that. So it could be a small piece. And one product sometimes has two or three pieces that are patentable. Okay, But if you, if you come up with something like making a table, and it's just a table, it's not patentable. There has to be something unique and new about it to be patentable. So a lot of times with a lot of open source physical product that I see, there's not really much about it that's patentable in the first place. What's making it open source is that the blueprints, the CAD drawings, etc., are being shared. So in many instances, it's not even an issue. There's nothing there to patent. And I think, and again, I'd love to have an attorney's opinion on this, I think if you did put out an open source project, And it didn't use anything that was like a patent already existed or already was pending and been filed for. And you could prove when it was introduced. And then somebody went out and tried to patent that. And it was all documented online. It would be very difficult for them to hold, uh, defend, or even maybe obtain the patent. Especially if you caught wind that that's what they were doing. And during their attempt to, to obtain the patent, you interfered with it. Then... It's also the case that what you're doing has to be valuable enough in the mind of either the troll or the manufacturer that it's worth the fight. Like, like that's, so if you came up with a way to turn water into gasoline and you wanted to be open source, you'd have to patent it just to protect it. I mean, you, you'd absolutely have to. Um, and if you didn't, then somebody would probably figure out how to screw you because it's so valuable. But if what you've come up with is 
a little gizmo that you know allows a person to have pliers with a little bit more dexterity in them, and all the tool makers go, that's probably not really worth anything, then they're probably not going to come after it, unless they think the market's big enough to come after it. Which leads me to kind of humanity evolving itself out of patent thinking. So one of the things that's drastically going to change this concept of every time somebody makes... See, because here's what's happened. Patenting has become a way to actually make something that's not that valuable appear more valuable to investors in industry. So a guy decides, I want to make a product that waters plants. So he comes up with a product that waters plants. And it does a better job than anything, but it basically uses technology that already exists, and it's just assembled a little bit differently. It's not unique enough to be patentable. So he sits down with a patent attorney, and they come up with anything they can to add to it, to change about it, to configure about it, that has enough uniqueness to convince a bureaucrat to say, yes, this is patentable. So then his product has patented technology, so it markets better. And then you can license that patented technology to other manufacturers who can make more than you already have. So it's become this way to get more out of a product than really makes sense. Human beings are starting to figure out that the patent is beginning to outlive its usefulness. It really is. This concept that we need to protect invention so the inventor can profit seems to have kind of gotten to a point where maybe not so much anymore. And one thing that's drastically going to change this as it continues to evolve and improve and go down in cost is 3D printing. So let's say you do come up with some little widget that is patentable and you get a patent on it. And it's for some sort of a tool. It's a, a, a moving part of a tool. And people all over the world start printing it on 3D printers and putting it into their tool. How are you going to enforce your patent? The, 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 we, we have completely parallel internets being developed right now. Where eventually you'll be able to basically share your computer as an internet server, like peer-to-peer -peer music sharing, but in a far more sophisticated way. We have technologies being developed that are going to enable new stock markets. Completely screwed up stock markets and totally ethical stock markets that have to compete with each other that the government can't regulate the FTC won't be able to do anything about them they'll exist in, inside virtual nations like I've talked about before where people will be able to invest in products, ideas, people, concepts regions of the world in, in a way outside of the oligarchy systems And they'll be regulated by their own charters. And people will look at that and say, this is what I value, so I'm going to go do that. I know that's a bit deep for today, but that's going to happen. So you're going to have a world where people can actually bank amongst themselves. And, and, and the, the centralized authority can't stop it. You can't do anything to stop it. If you shut down a node, there's 500 million other ones. Good luck. You know, they don't even understand what's being developed. Most people don't understand what's being developed. So you have that ability to distribute technology, and you have a plan to build a product that somebody has 17 patents on. What prevents a person from gaining the plans, dropping them in their printer, and making one for themselves to use? How would you ever enforce that patent? What would you ever do to enforce that patent? 
a parallel of this. There are certain plants that are patented. Okay, certain varieties of peaches or apples or grapes or whatever. Patented varieties. And generally they have patent periods, I think it's 18 or 19 years, and then they become open source. They're treated a little bit differently. They don't have quite the duration of a patent of a physical product mine. And that means that if there's this, we'll call it the, the, uh, the, the brown duck peach, because there's a brown duck looking at me through my window right now. So if the brown duck peach is patented, and I want to graft brown duck peach scion onto level peach rootstock and make more peach trees, there's the, the patent holder will probably be entitled to something like a standard industry rate is like a dollar. So for every one I make, I'm supposed to give them a dollar. And most patent holders say things like, well, unless you're a commercial nursery, you can't even use my patent. You can't make brown duck peach trees. You just can't. You're not allowed to. And you better not do it. Okay, so I buy a brown duck peach tree from Lowe's box store. Bring it home and plant it. Next year, there's a bunch of new growth on it. I go out there and cut some scion off it. I graft the scion on a level rootstock, and I plant it elsewhere on my property. That happens all the time right now. And you know what gets done about it? The square root of nothing. The square root of nothing. It's entirely unenforceable being utilized that way. Because it's a decentralized model. Now, if I set up Jack's Awesome Tree Nursery and have an online catalog, and I say, new this year, the brown duck peach tree, okay? And I'm selling hundreds or thousands of them. Then, if that patent holder catches wind of it, it's highly likely that I'm going to be at least served with a cease and desist order. And if I don't cease and desist, it's going to be serious issue. Okay? Because what they're doing is they're protecting their business with the people that are paying them in two ways. One, they want to keep collecting. So if, if, if this other customer figures out they don't do anything, well, why should I pay you? Okay? And then they're, they're also trying to protect the marketplace for their partners that they've agreed to license the patent to. So that they have, you know, somewhat of an exclusive on the brown duck peach tree. So that's, that's the more you move toward a centralized model, the more patents are actually effective in controlling a market. The more decentralized you get. So there's all, there's, I mean, there, how many computers do you think are running unlicensed Microsoft software that Microsoft doesn't do anything about? And they know it's there and they just, they can't. They can't be bothered. But let a corporation with 50 users And they get, they get wind of that, and the corporation has assets, and they're all over it with a hard-on. Okay? And it's not that they won't occasionally go after an individual to try to make a point or something. It's, it's impractical to do in, in mass. It can't be done. They actually have to develop technology that makes using stuff unlicensed better, which actually creates actual innovation, because it creates these security options that are there. So, on this whole thing... I think that in totality, we have to say there should be a way that I could come out with a device and say that anybody that wants to work on it in an open source platform, anything that's produced off of it is, is public forever. And there may be, but I don't know how, how ironclad that is, how, how immune to patent trolls that that is. And there is a really good solution with open source technology for software, but how it applies to something like a gizmo or a gadget or a widget, I don't know. But again, I think that a lot of those things 
are going to evolve to a point where how are you going to police it? Because you're going to sell plans through a banking system that's not seen as a banking system, using a currency that's not considered as a currency that you have to be allowed into to get into, and all the exchange of value is done with electronics, and the product is actually produced by the user who compensates you for making it available to them. And you're going to police that? Really? And then I think the other side of this is companies are starting to snap to how the open source model is profitable. And we can look at another concept that seems totally unrelated to understand that. Let's say that I wanted to go get a cow. And I wanted to feed that cow, graze that cow on my property, get that cow to a weight where it makes sense to be slaughtered, shoot that cow, hang it up, skin it, cut it up into beef, package it, and put it into my freezer. There isn't anything at all that prevents me from doing that right now. Except I don't want to. I don't think my land's right for it, but let's say my land was bigger and, and one or two cows was easy enough to do. I don't want to do all that work. I don't want to add that to my farm. I don't want to add that to my to-do list. I don't want to butcher an animal that big on, on my own. I don't want to have to deal with all of the waste product that comes from that. I, I, don't, I don't see anything wrong with it. I don't want to. Okay? So, if I want a cow or a quarter of a cow or a half of a cow that's grass-fed, produced, and packaged and butchered, and all I want to do is cook it and eat it, get that quality out of it, then I go to somebody and say, I want to buy that from you. And they provide me the service of delivering that product. Okay. If you wanted to implement an open source product or technology, but there were pieces of it that you didn't want to do yourself, don't you think the most preferred company to implement it would be the one that created it. That doesn't mean competitors couldn't rise up and also deliver that company's product to you. But don't you think that unless the company lost its way, that if a company developed an open source technology and offered, like Apache does, consultants that help your company implement it, that they would tend to do pretty well. And they have. Extremely well. Even though anybody can use it, People that want to take it beyond a base platform hire the company that created it to implement it. And there's no reason that can't happen with just about any technology. And I think there is a point where we start to ask ourselves, what's best for everyone? What's best for everyone? And, you know, you look at Benjamin Franklin's stove, and it would have been a failure if it would have been patented. And it became one of the most successful things of all time because it was open for anybody to make better. And there's never been a time in history where we have greater opportunity to do that. The collaboration that can be done, even on a physical product today, through electronic communication, is through the roof. So I really think we're, we're lucky people, folks. We're living in a time in history with some of the greatest shifts in technology, power, control, economics, authority that, 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 that has ever occurred 
since the dawning of civilization. It's happening now. And, and when you're in such shifts, when you study history, you look at a major shift. And you, you, in your microwave mind, it, it, it happened quickly. And in the totality of history, it happened quickly. But when you're in the middle of it, it seems to be going in slow motion. These shifts are happening faster than any time in history. So we have this incredible opportunity, and then we also have this incredible potential to be harmed by these shifts if we don't learn to function with them and move forward. So that's my advice in all of these things. Don't look for them to save you. Look for them as tools that you can use to adapt to all of these shifts, economic, decentralization, all of these different things. But I, I think like the worst thing that people could do that want to develop a product in an open source model is to not develop it out of fear. I think we're much better going out and developing it, being known for developing it. And, and because a lot of times people think, oh, it's going to be the greatest thing since sliced bread, and you throw it out there and no one cares. But then it teaches you, why didn't anyone care? How can I make people care? And you do a better job next time around. And then people get you get buy-in, and then it actually takes off forward. Or you do hit a home run right away. I'd rather put it out there and defend it than not put it out there because I was worried someone would take it away from me. That's just my thoughts. Closing song today, uh, I chose for a couple reasons. One, um, I just think the message is is really good of this song. This song's from, I think, 1969. Two, I just think, if I didn't tell you what it was and I just played you the, the, the intro portion of guitar in it, the second, in fact, the second you heard the first riff, you'd go, oh, I know that song. It's one of the most recognizable songs that, that's ever been out there. Uh, it's by Creedence Clearwater Revival and its Fortunate Son. Uh, and it's, of course, basically an anti-war anthem uh, for very good reason. But I don't think most people know why it was written or what inspired it to be written. I think it was just all oh, it was the, the anti-war segment of the um, the Vietnam War era, so and because it's so associated with that, and think of how many you know Vietnam move, Vietnam War movies have used elements of that song because it's so iconic and associated with it. That because it's so so much so that we just say, well, that's it. We don't look for more of the story. John Fogarty actually said he wrote his this song in response to the wedding of David Eisenhower. And Julie Nixon. David Eisenhower was the grandson of President Dwight Eisenhower, and Julie Nixon was the daughter of then President Richard Nixon. And what he said is he knew that well connected young men and women would have nothing to do with the escalating war and leave the fighting to the less fortunate. And as true as that is about wars, as true as that is about wars, it's also true about the fighting that we do amongst ourselves inside the borders of our own country, and not just the physical violence fightings, but the, the debates, the arguments, all this stuff with the ass clown circus in the 2016 election. The people actually fighting about it are you and me. They're not. They're not the politicians. The politicians are the wrestlers of the WWE, I guess is what they call it today. When I was a kid, it was the WWF and the NWA, right? Um, they're fine whether they win or lose an election. And the ones that get voted out of office, they end up with more money than they started with because they go work as lobbyists. 
the people that run for president and don't win write books and sell millions of copies because talk show hosts on, on, on radio sell them for them. Or they get their own show or whatever. It, it's, it's all a gimmick. It's all a game. And all of the pr supposed fighting is choreographed. And, and we fight the battle before each other. And in many instances, we have citizens of our country, which has the potential to really be the greatest nation ever conceived of. We do. We have every opportunity to do it. But, but it, we're falling so much further from that ideal every day, it makes me sick. But instead of working toward that ideal, we're cursing each other. We're cursing each other, fighting over men and women who wouldn't piss on us if we were on fire to put us out. Men curse their fathers and fathers curse their sons in political debates over people that wouldn't piss on them if they were burning. But not the fortunate son. The fortunate son doesn't get involved. Or if he does... This position is predetermined. Something to think about. And with that, it's been another episode of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.